You are listening to The Concierge on Monocle Radio. Coming up on today's programme, we kick off with an Italian theme, checking into one of our favourite properties in Murano, the Miramonte Boutique Hotel. And from Turin to Sardinia, we put your questions to our concierge service. We receive a letter from the sleepy village of Cardimili in the Greek Peloponnese. Looking up at the mountains, it's very easy to see how the ancient Greek gods held such power. Driving along the hair-raising coastal roads, I wouldn't be surprised to see a sata or a centaur appear from behind a mountain rock. The travel interrogator this week is Michael Bonsor, Managing Director of Rosewood London, celebrating 10 years in the capital. And we're off to Hamburg's Aircraft Interiors Expo, after which we really do hope you'll be sitting comfortably. Others, however, go for something a little more different still, such as Lufthansa Technik, the design, maintenance and repair arm of the German giant. Today, it has set up its very own catwalk. That is all coming up on The Concierge in association with Allianz Partners. Welcome to The Concierge on Monocle Radio with me, Robert Bounds. Now, you may have noticed from our introduction that we're keeping our concierge service all things Italian for the first half of the programme. And first, we're off to Murano, where we can speak to Annalena Messner, who works in events and guest relations at one of our favourite stays in town, the Miramonte Boutique Hotel. Annalena, it's wonderful to have you on The Concierge today. I'm amazed that we can have peeled you away from such a beautiful view to draw you to the telephone. So I feel very lucky to have you on the programme today. What can you see around you from where you are in the hotel? And what's the weather like? Is it still vacation weather in northern Italy? Thank you for welcoming us. We can say that we are still enjoying summer times here at Avelengo. It's on about 1,230 metres above the sea level and we are just overlooking Murano. We got some beautiful hot summer days in the last couple of weeks. Now got some rain, so now the landscape is uh, very green again. And then some more sunny days are coming up, and we are getting closer to the late this to the late summer days, which are usually even more beautiful because we have this clear mountain views again. The views on a clear day must be absolutely stunning from the Miramonte. Now, give us a little bit of, you guys have a little bit of a sense of humour. I know that from how you've designed your website and some of the some of the verbiage on it, some of the wording on it, Annalena. You open your, your website. The billing is hard to find, hard to forget. So if I would, how would, imagine we have American listeners, Asian listeners, let alone your fellow Europeans. How do most people get to the Miramonte Hotel? We have a small airport here, which is not yet connected with the big international airports, but some guests from the northern part of Europe or Germany are already flying into Bolzano, and then it's just a 40-minute drive to Miramonti, which Um is quite convenient. But yes, what you said before about the slogan, how to find, how to forget, we had already some funny situations while people try to to reach us. 
yeah. his uh, slogan I- is still correct. I'm imagining a few people tired and weary by the roadside with a sort of wet map at 11 o'clock <laughs> at night. <laughs> Send out the search parties. But once people find your hotel, and I think it's a brave move as a piece of branding for a hotel, because I think it's nice. It, it genuinely feels, uh, it feels off the beaten track. It feels like a place to discover, doesn't it? And I suppose that's borne out in some of the activities and offerings that you guys offer at the hotel, hiking, obviously skiing or there and thereabouts. And lots of gastronomic delights and, and things as well. What are the things that you've been recommending to your guests this summer, Annalena? So the summer at Miramonti means for us to spend a lot of time outside, to be active, to explore the outdoor sports activities, what we got. So we personally are recommending a lot the walk or the hike starting from the hotel to Waldbichl, which is a small family-run mountain restaurant with very traditional and typical dishes. It's about a two-hours walk and a two-hours walk back through meadows, forests, different types of trails, and then having just great traditional South Tyrolean cuisine with a great view into the mountains and other valleys. As you already mentioned, the autumn is a very beautiful month or period of the year here. And then where we are still having good weather and blue skies and then coming into winter, we have usually every year quite a lot of snow, obviously depending on the year and the conditions, but we are very close to the skiing area Murano 2000. It's about a 10 minutes drive where we have our Land Rover shuttle for free for all of our guests who wants to join the slopes or just would love to do a winter hike in the skiing um, and hiking area. Beautiful. Well, you've set the scene, Annalena. Thank you so much for talking to us today on the concierge. I feel like we've had a little visit to Medamonti flying in, whistling our wings through the mountains of Bolzano, and up we go. For the time being, uh, live on the line from the Miramonti Boutique Hotel, Annalena Messner, thank you very much indeed. And now to our very own Little Black Book, that part of the programme where we look to our correspondents all around the globe to answer your questions. The concierge desk is open for business. And first up, we have listener Kyra from Singapore with a question about Turin. Dear Monocle Concierge, my friend and I are planning to go to Turin in October for a much-needed break. Do you have any recommendations, particularly for restaurants? Well, luckily, we have a voice very well known to Monocle radio listeners, and that is Confect Deputy Editor, and more importantly, Turin native, Chiara Ramella, right here in the studio. Chiara, lovely to see you. I have to say, I couldn't have made up this question to be better suited to my personal history and taste. I like it. So take it away. There are many good things to be had in a sort of autumnal Turin, I should imagine. The food's coming into its own and many other things. Absolutely. One thing that I should say is that I think a lot of people think of Italy as a summer destination. And it's true that the south of Italy sings in summer. But Piedmont is best experienced in autumn. It really is when it flourishes with the bounty of the harvest. Mm. You know, in many ways, Italian regions are very determined by the food that they grow and the food that they eat. You know, every place is really a representation, a reflection of the food that is eaten. And it's very much the case in Piedmont as well. Piedmont is a land of 
red meats, red wine, long stews and beautiful grapes and chestnuts and nuts and, you know, all the <laughs> wonderful decadent things. So food-wise, another thing that many people are drawn to Piedmont for in October is actually the beginning of truffle season. Mm. This can be enjoyed, of course, in the restaurants across town. What I would suggest to start with the restaurant side of things is to definitely try and go to a really traditional down-to-earth trattoria-style place. But in Turin, we don't call them, we call them also trattorie, but we call them piole. So whenever you see the name piola in the name of a restaurant, uh-huh. you know it really is like proper down super to local, earth, yeah. super local. Nice. Uh, my favorite is Piola da Cianci. It's on this beautiful small square next to some rather impressive Roman remains. And in many traditional Piedmontese restaurants across Turin, the kind of things that you want to be ordering are vitello tonnato. This is thin slices of veal with tuna sauce mm. slathered on top. It's kind of surf and turf, but it really, really, really works. Some people are put off by the description, but it's fantastic. It's so good. Capers on top. Um, we have the so-called tomino elettrico, so the electric tomino, which is this small kind of goat's cheese, little bonbon of, of, a, of, a, of a cheese. And it's called elettrico because it's got this very zingy green sauce. Green sauce goes on everything in Piedmont as well, this kind of parsley, mm. oil and garlicky. There's lots of garlic everywhere. Another great classic of Piedmontese cuisine is bagna cauda, mm. which is anchovy cooked down with cream and garlic. You really want to be hungry <laughs> when you go. Normally you can have it in a little pot that's kept bubbling with a little light underneath and you dip your crudités in it. Or another great classic is peppers with bagna cauda on top. And then the meat, as I said, we are the best producers of meat, I think, in Italy, veal and beef. So definitely go for a battuta di fassona, which is a tartare essentially, but just better than the usual one. <laughs> um, and so for a few names of restaurants, just off yes, the top please, of my head, yeah. Scannabue in Central is one of my favorite places for meat. It means, you know, kill the beef, Scannabue. So they know what they're doing when it comes to meat. And Antica Trattoria con Calma is a place on the hill. Definitely make a point of going to the hill because it's much quieter and just relaxing, kind of gets you out of the city. It's a beautiful place there. Another favorite of mine, Osteria Antica Sere. Not in the center, which means that it's even better because actual <laughs> locals go there. And it has this wonderful patio at the back in October. The weather could still be rather nice. So you could even venture outside. Obviously, aperitivo, a huge deal all across Italy. Yes, please. So my favorite is probably in the small square that has pastis in it. It's a small square full of little bars. Pastis is my favorite. It has the slight reminiscence of a kind of south of France. And we're not too far off from France anyway. But there you will be showered with little snacks. So resist the temptation of filling yourself because you could still go for dinner at Tregalio Tregaline really nearby. That is our awesome sorted. We're just going to take the rest of our holiday off and, and decamp to Turin, I think. Yeah, I mean, if you didn't blow it all in August, I think keep a couple of weeks for October and uh, make it a Piedmontese sojourn. Beautiful. Chiara Romella, as ever, thank you very much indeed. Next up, we have a question from Sebastian Tondo in New York. Any hidden gems recommendations for a weekend in Sardinia? And here's what to do, courtesy of David Pleasant, voiced by our very own Lex Self. If you're looking for hidden gems, in Sardinia you have found one giant treasure trove. 
First things first, decide where to focus, as this is a very large island, the second largest in the Mediterranean, and approximately the size of Wales. Monocle recommends the surprisingly overlooked capital, Cagliari. See Monocle issue 156 for more on that. This easy breezy mini metropolis, with its palm and jacaranda lined avenues, pastel coloured modernist and postmodernist architecture, has a Spartan elegance. At the Museo Nazionale di Archeologio, you'll find countless treasures from the many ancient civilizations that have flourished and fallen in Sardinia. The bronze figurines from the Neuragic period and the giants of Monte Prama, thought to date from 1500 BC, are not to be missed. From there, take a stroll through the Castello district to the Bastione San Remi for a spectacular view across the appropriately named Golfo degli Angeli, Bay of Angels. Sardinian cuisine is conquering both the Italian mainland and the world beyond, and in Cagliari you'll be able to find the best of the best in terms of produce and fine dining from across the island. The legendary San Benedetto covered market is currently undergoing a revamp, but all the stalls have been set up around the Teatro Lirico Opera House nearby. You'll be hard-pressed to find better fresh seafood anywhere in the world, hence the constant interest of Japanese visitors here. For classic Sardinian fare, book a table at the rustic yet contemporary Pani e Casu, back in the hilltop Castello district. Great sunset views here too. For a more laid-back, fusion-filled approach, make sure to go to Cagliari Come Marseille-inspired Bar Pipette. Fine wines from near and far are accompanied with beautifully conceived dishes. As they say in Sardinian, Bonu Viazzu. And if you have a question for the concierge, please do write to us. Send your questions to concierge at monocle.com. My great thanks to Chiara Ramella and David Pleasant there. Next up, it's a letter from Greece. Just like the Monocle team, Allianz Partners is committed to helping you build exceptional experiences. Allianz Partners' reputation for excellence and the continuous drive to innovate means the business is uniquely equipped to accompany its partners and customers with their ever-changing travel needs. So get out there and visit the places, enjoy the experiences and meet the people changing the world of hospitality for the better. Allianz Partners. Get the most out of your experience with peace of mind. Where arid mountains meet the sea, Cardemili is a Greek village carefully balancing on the precipice of old and new. Peppered among Byzantine churches and coastal fortresses are luscious wine bars and jazz venues, which draw large summer crowds from across Europe. Monocle's Isabella Jewell sent us a letter from her favourite alternative Hellenic hangout. Dear concierge, I'm writing to you from the sleepy village of Cardemili on the Greek Peloponnese. It's dusk and I'm surrounded by squat, gnarled olive trees, which, despite their modest appearance, hold the secret to some of the world's best olives, the brown Kalamata variety, and the most delicious olive oil I have ever tasted. I've bid the sun goodbye with a cool glass of Greek Retsina, an aromatic white wine infused with the resin of Aleppo pine. And what is more fitting to accompany it than some crusty bread dipped into a resplendent pool of golden olive oil with a sprinkle of sea salt, 
oil that came from the very trees that surround me. A one-hour drive south from Kalamata, Cardamilli is a small fishing village which slopes down from the edge of the Tagatus mountain range towards the Messinian Gulf. The place holds a beauty of mythic proportions. In fact, looking up at the mountains, it's very easy to see how the ancient Greek gods held such power. Driving along the hair-raising coastal roads, I wouldn't be surprised to see a satyr or a centaur appear from behind a mountain rock. Steeped in history, Cardamilli even features in the epic poems of ancient Greek writer Homer. It has inspired both film directors and writers, acting as the backdrop for American rom-com Before Midnight, starring Ethan Hawke and Judy Delpy. And you can see why. With the scent of mountain thyme and jasmine in the air, there's an undeniable romance to the place. Perhaps it's this that drew travel writer Patrick Lee Fermer and his photographer wife Joan to the area. After writing a book on the region, they built a magnificent stone house just outside Cardamilli in the 1960s. With its arched windows looking out to the sea, some of the art world's biggest names stayed here when the smog of London or New York became tiresome. Decades on, though, Cardamilli is still a hub for creatives, who flock to the village in May to attend a score of free jazz concerts. It's all part of the Cardamilli International Jazz Festival, which was set up by Norwegian music fans in 2011 and hosts jazz artists from around the world. To get a real sense of the place, though, you have to check out some of the historic sites. Luckily for tourists, they're as generously scattered as dried oregano on feta. And on a drive to one of the region's best swimming spots, you can get your fill of culture. Cardamilli is part of the Mani Peninsula, the home of the Maniot people who claims descent from the ancient Spartans. These tough mountain people constructed stone towers to protect their land, which often bore witness to family feuds and hosted micro-warlords. Many of these towers are still standing and provide stunning views of the arid terrain and the sea. Get back in your car and you'll cruise through tiny villages built around Byzantine churches, barely big enough for a family of worshippers, and certainly not a Greek Orthodox one. And by the time you've culturally enriched yourself enough to write home, you'll have reached Limini. It's one of my favourite places to swim and a close second after Calogria Beach, where you can cool off in icy mountain springs. Packed now with rather swanky seafood restaurants, the village of Limini is built around a perfect aquamarine bay. It's a great place to gently float on your back, or if you're feeling adventurous, don a snorkel and check out the sea turtles, who often appear in the hope of a scrap of fish. Cardamilli and the Mani should definitely be on your Hellenic travel hit list, serving up the holy trinity of excellent food, beautiful beaches and fascinating culture. For Monocle Radio, I'm Isabella Jewell. A decade ago, Michael Bonsall, managing director of Rosewood London, opened that aforementioned hotel and has been instrumental in building the property's identity and community. 
Rosewood London is marking its milestone anniversary this year with unique partnerships from food to fashion and design. After all, you only turn 10 once. I sat down with Michael here in the studio to find out how the team will be celebrating and discover a little bit more about the Rosewood brand. Michael, thank you so much uh, for joining us here on The Concierge. It's an honour to have a man of your august status. Wow. And so well-dressed, so wasted on the radio. We need to get some pictures out to accompany this programme. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you here. So we're here, I mean, we'd love to talk to you on any day, on any occasion, but we're talking about Rosewood London's 10-year anniversary. Yes. Something which you very personally oversaw. So tell us a little bit about what you and your team aimed to do with that launch a decade ago and how different London was, the kind of hospitality scene, if it was, 10 years ago. Yeah, 10 years ago, I was previously working in Mayfair and uh, was sort of dragged out the streets of Mayfair over to Holborn, not really knowing where I was going. Kicking and screaming? Kicking and screaming. I think everybody thought I'd been fired from my last job and (laughs) what what are you doing? I didn't really know where Holborn was. You know, actually, when the cab stopped, I was like, oh, we're here. Like, I actually (laughs) didn't really know where we were going. And that was really part so of it. So you went from sort of P.G. Woodhouse novel to a Dickens novel, you felt, in your head exactly. or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Right, okay. <laughs> but, you know, that was the massive attraction mm. about opening Rosewood London. It wasn't in Knightsbridge. It wasn't in Mayfair. What was that hotel doing? What was the brand? You know, mm-hmm. Rosewood had been around for 40 years. However, you know, there hadn't been a Rosewood in London or in Europe for so long. Mm-hmm. So it was just creating a destination and then also creating that brand awareness too. That challenge was really important for me. So something about presumably going to a part of London that's now thriving, but was always underserved in terms of hotels because there are fewer things to do apart from the British Museum and some of the things like that. It's more of a university and a business area, I guess, where it was 10 years ago. So you've kind of landed a bit like a spaceship and have attracted other people to it. Because I see in your wonderful bars there and restaurants, you attract Londoners. That's one of the toughest skills of a hotel to attract locals to it. Is that fair to say? It is. You have... 20, 25,000 people yeah. on that sort of couple of blocks. They had nowhere to go before. You know, they were all then driving west into Mayfair, into Knightsbridge to client, you know, client lunches and so forth. So actually, when those revolving doors opened, when we first opened, the bar and the restaurant were full from the start because they were like, oh, thank God. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something now in the area that we can actually go to. Really important. And actually, this is the case for all Rosewoods, that we bring in as much of the local community as possible. For the last 10 years of the hotel, how have you managed to do that? Just by quality of service, word of mouth? How do you reach out to locals as well as your Middle Eastern, American, European customers? Yeah, I mean, it's a massively multifaceted approach. So working with the local community, working with charities locally, right from the get-go 10 years ago, we've had the most amazing partnership with Great Ormond Street because they are literally like four blocks from the hotel and hosting a lot of their galas and social events nice. and fundraising and so forth. So really getting into the community, working with a lot of the, the schools in the area and trying to attract talent into the hotel who previously didn't think that they were good enough to apply a luxury property. So mm-hmm. um, really working with the community, the local council and so forth, trying to get into the community. Other than that, we've always had a very strong base of American clients because of the roots of the company were founded at Dallas like over 40 years ago. So that's always been a really strong market for us, which is great because the vast brand ma- recognition people know they want yeah, to Yeah, and the vast London. majority of high spenders in the summer are American clients. So they have a natural affinity to our brand and to the property. 
anyway, which has been great. I travel a lot into the Middle East, mm -hmm. into Asia, into the US to meet clients personally, companies or corporate accounts and so forth. So that personal touch is really important. You mentioned that you're, you're sort of travel Middle East, US, yes. Europe, I'm sure all across the world yeah. to kind of keep on top of business. How yes. do you, is that kind of, is that sort of anecdotal? Are you kind of doing secret shopping as it were? You know what I mean? As staying at other hotels, staying at Rosewood mm. hotels mm. and kind of see, trying to see how, how they do and don't do things as you might do them? Or is that a formal thing? How do you sort of hone your skills, Michael? Or yeah. are you teaching other people? Maybe? Yeah, on all of that. I love traveling. I'm typically at Heathrow like three, four times in the month. I love going to see all of our properties. So as new properties, and there's a lot of new Rosewoods. Mm either just opened or coming your way. So yeah, we just opened Kona Village in Hawaii. Haven't quite made it out there. But previous to that, Little Dicks Bay, Madrid, Villa Magna. Yeah, I try and sort of visit them all. Because our, especially when you're based in London, a lot of our clients that come through our door are also going on to Madrid or they're going on to the Caribbean and there's a lot of crossovers. So we really need to be well versed in those properties as well. I do go and stay at all the roads as much as possible during the year. But I also love to stay at other brands. So I'll stay at other brands. I'll stay at private homes. I just came off a boat in July, which was really interesting. I love to travel different airlines. I love to travel with different brands. So that's just really important. And just finally, Michael, you've got some kind of deep roots in hospitality. Yeah. Grew up in Scotland. Your parents yes. were, were hoteliers. Hoteliers yeah. as well. Tell us a bit about where, kind of what you can remember as a, yeah. as a kid, kind of growing up and having kind of hospitality running through your veins. I yeah. Think. I mean, from day one of me on this earth, I was in a hotel. So my earliest, earliest, earliest memories are being surrounded by guests, you know, my parents were like perfectionists of what they did. And they were really quite visionary with the service and, and product elements that they brought in. So I learned a lot. I, le I learned everything from them. Mm. And I spent most of my childhood up in Inverness. And then when I was at university, my parents uh, paid me quite a, a lovely allowance, actually. So I wouldn't have a job, but I had a job. Um, <laughs> so I worked then at One Devonshire Gardens with Andrew Fairley, who was a phenomenal chef who sadly passed away. And I... Yeah, and then kind of started my career at Four Seasons right after that. But yeah, I feel very blessed that from a very early age, I knew what I wanted to do with my life. Well, for the time being, we'll definitely have you back on the programme. Well, thank Michael. you very much. It's been wonderful to have you. Um, for the time being, Michael Bonser of Rosewood London. Thank you very much for joining thank us. Thank you. Hamburg's Aircraft Interiors Expo, or AIX, and its concurrent sister event, the World Travel Catering and Onboard Services Expo, no less, sees industry insiders from around the world descend on the German city to talk all things cabin interiors. Expect delegates who know their way around a cabin and for a mess it with plenty of concepts and interactive experiences along the way, while posing questions such as how do you make in-flight entertainment more personalised or how to design a feeling of more space on a narrow-bodied plane? AIX looks to provide just those answers. Our Europe editor-at-large, Ed Stocker, sent us this report. I'm here at the Aircraft Interiors Expo, the AIX, in a warm and sunny Hamburg. And I'm interested to know how the pandemic has left the industry, where it's going and how people see the future. My name's Polly McGraw and I am the event director of Aircraft Interiors Expo and World Travel Catering and Onboard Services Expo. I think the industry is set to return to pre-COVID levels, probably 2025, 2026 onwards. But people have come to this show this week far more optimistic, 
Clearly passenger numbers and the number of flights are getting back to pre-COVID levels. There are issues with the supply chain, there are supply chain stresses, so the demand is certainly there, but at the moment the challenge is for a lot of these suppliers that are here actually picking that business back up. But yeah, the future is definitely looking bright for them. If you want a deep dive into the minutiae of the aeroplane cabin experience, it's here in Germany's second city. A niche of suppliers, manufacturers, designers and caterers They see anchor floor fittings, LED lighting, sequencing and optimised ceiling architecture where we might only see seat rows, TV screens and overhead bins. It's no exaggeration to say that three days of talks and meetings here help shape what flying will look and feel like in years to come. My name is Mark Hiller, I'm CEO of Recaro Aircraft Seating. First of all, seating did not change during COVID or after COVID, so more or less the trends which have been there before COVID, they continue and they are even more important. Sustainability, which means lightweight design, using recycled material. Then it's also about privacy, having more privacy and also additional comfort features in the seats. How do you mix that, I guess? Because there's always that challenge of, like you say, more comfort, but also there's a bottom line airlines and maybe this is especially true after the pandemic want to save money or recuperate money so how do you balance i guess that comfort with also that cost making sure airlines are perhaps saving in certain regards so we call it ingenious design really to make very comfortable seats on the other hand at a reasonable price and uh, besides that we also need to consider that one of the main differentiators for airlines is really the cabin because they're having more or less maybe competitors, they're having the same planes, but the differentiator is then the seat, especially. It's not just the airlines who want to set themselves apart. It's all the companies exhibiting at AIX, and that means being able to host a good old-fashioned party. Recaro has an afternoon drinks get-together featuring a live saxophonist, while another seating brand organises business chats around pints of jet black stout. Having a well-stocked bar is clearly the key to having a good fare. Others, however, go for something a little more different still, such as Lufthansa Technik, the design, maintenance and repair arm of the German giant. Today, it has set up its very own catwalk. To really show the striking technology in a unique way, the model is wearing this shimmering silver-grey jumpsuit. It is like a contemporary second skin to your aircraft. To cut emissions and shrink your carbon footprint, it is made out of a durable bionic film that mimics, of course, the skin of sharks. You can't get very far at AIX without being assorted by the word sustainability, applied in every possible context. There are sustainable materials for seats, sustainable waste disposal solutions and sustainable prototype cups partially made from agave. But the real brave new world that a world around AIX reveals is how connectivity is set to ramp up on board. OneWeb has been launching over 600 low-Earth satellites in a bid to connect people everywhere and stop the sort of latency issues we normally experience when connecting to the internet on a plane. 
Nick Maynard is OneWeb's marketing director for mobility. The passenger of today expects to remain connected wherever they are. They're connected in their home, they're connected in Starbucks. They want to be connected on an aeroplane. Today's services don't really deliver that globally or consistently. So what OneWeb will do is deliver a consistent, reliable, global solution for in-flight connectivity over every ocean, over the polar routes, across every continent. You'll get a seamless and consistent connectivity experience when you're on an aeroplane. And that's brand new. Beyond tech wizardry, there are clear wider trends in Hamburg. First class, for example, continues to shrink. There's also a trend towards airlines using narrow-bodied planes for longer-range missions. And there's a hint that some of the perks from premium classes may filter down to coach. If Air New Zealand's economy-class bunk bed concept called SkyNest is anything to go by. Our airline experience may be all the richer for it. On that one, we'll leave the last word to event director, Polly McGraw. It only takes one normally. They're so competitive with each other and it's, it's critical that they're passenger-centric. So if they see that another airline is investing, then it only takes one airline to be brave and bold and, and do something truly innovative for the others to follow. For Monocle in Hamburg, I'm Ed Stocker. Thanks to Ed Stocker there, who is in Hamburg for the AIX. And that is it for today's programme. Thanks to our guests, Annalena Messner and Michael Bonser. Our producers were Tom Webb and Monica Lillis, and our studio manager, Tamsin Howard. If you have a question for the concierge, please do drop us an email on concierge at monocle.com. Join us next time for our final programme this summer, where we bring you a special episode from the Monocle Quality of Life Conference from Munich. For the time being, I've been Robert Bounds. Thank you very much for tuning in and happy travels. Thank you.